If you have a Bible, open with me to uh, 1 Timothy chapter 4. 1 Timothy chapter 4. We've been working our way through this short uh, letter for a few weeks now. Um, 1 Timothy, as you may know now, is a letter that um, the older apostle Paul wrote to his younger protege, Timothy. Timothy is pastoring a church in Ephesus, and he was sent there by the Apostle Paul to, as he says in chapter 1, verses 3 and 4, to charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine, nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies which promote speculation rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. And so Timothy is there um, essentially to clean house. Timothy is there to, to, to confront and to charge these false teachers in the church. And, and in this letter, Paul's writing specifically about that, about God's house, about how God's people ought to conduct themselves in God's church. The, the last couple of weeks, we talked about what leadership looked like in God's house in chapter uh, 3. And today in chapter 4, we'll see not only really what bad leadership looks like, but this letter will also get a lot more personal, uh, specifically in chapter 4, primarily directed to Timothy himself and how Timothy ought to act as God's under-shepherd in the church there at Ephesus. So let me, let me read, uh, let's read together chapter 4 and we'll do our best to, to work through it together. So First uh, Timothy 4, I'll start in verse 1. Now the Spirit expressly says that in later times... Some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and the teachings of demons. So this is very serious here, Paul's saying. Look, this is, this is happening now. When he's, when he's talking about later times, he's not talking about necessarily um, the, 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 our future now, but he's saying then. What's happening now, after Paul has left, there are these false teachers who are devoting themselves to, to spirits, deceitful spirits and demons through the teaching, through, through the insanity insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared. And he says they, they forbid marriage and they require abstinence from foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. He says that for everything created by God is good. Nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving for it is made holy by the word of God in prayer. And then in verse 6 he says, so if you put these things before the brothers you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus, being trained in the words of the faith and of the good doctrine that you have followed. So he's drawing this contrast between the, the false teachers and their, their poor doctrine and theology, their, their demonic theology, and the words of faith and the good doctrine that Timothy has followed. And so he says, have nothing to do with these irreverent, these silly myths. Instead, train yourself for godliness. For while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way, as it holds promise for the present life, but also for the life to come. He says, this saying is trustworthy, deserving of full acceptance. For to this end we toil and we strive because we have our hope set on the living God, who is the Savior of all people, especially those who believe. And so he says in verse 11, command and teach these things. Let no one despise you for your youth. Timothy, Timothy was a young guy, probably in his maybe, maybe late 20s, maybe early 30s, almost certainly uh, younger than 50. He says, let no one despise you because of your youth, but set the believers an example in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, in purity. Paul says, until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture 
to exhortation, to teaching. Do not neglect the gift you have which was given you by prophecy when the council of elders laid their hands on you. He said, practice these things. Immerse yourself in them so that all will see your progress. And keep a close watch on yourself and on your teaching. Persist in this. For by so doing, you will save yourself and your hearers. God, again, we thank you for this word. We thank you that you are God who speaks to us. God, just as you uh, challenged Timothy, God, challenge us this morning. Keep us from false teaching and false doctrine. God, let us feast on your word. God, we thank you and we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So here in, uh, in 1 Timothy 4, Paul provides uh, a bit more information about what's actually going on with these false teachers here in Ephesus. These, these men and women that Timothy is called to confront, that he's called to correct. Uh, and here we get a little bit more information about what these uh, false teachers were actually teaching, what they were perpetuating in the church. Paul said this was a different teaching from the true teaching of the gospel, from the teaching they received from the apostles. And, and Paul mentions two things specifically there in verse 3. He mentions that these false teachers, uh, they forbid marriage and they require abstinence from certain kinds of foods, most likely um, abstinence from meat. So they were forbidding marriage and, and likely forbidding um, any kind of meat eating from the Christians. And, and this, this practice is known as asceticism. Asceticism is essentially this practice that you, you are avoiding certain pleasures like sexual intimacy within marriage in order to gain or maintain favor from God. So you're sort of holding back. You're saying, I'm not going to engage in, in these things of, of the flesh, quote unquote, certain foods, even, even, the, even this institution of marriage, so that I can gain God's favor. And, and essentially what Paul is condemning here is their legalism. He, he's, he's calling this legalism and he's, and he's calling it um, this belief that you could gain God's favor based on what you denied yourself or based on what you choose to avoid. He's calling this teaching, um, in no uncertain terms, demonic. He's saying this, this legalism is demonic in your church. This is an evil spirit that is infiltrated among you. That you think that, that by your behavior, by your, your abstinence from these certain things, that you can somehow earn God's favor. Paul is always so clear throughout the scriptures. Uh, all of scripture is so clear that the good news of Jesus is that he saved us because of his goodness, because of his faithfulness, because of his righteousness, not because of our own. And this is what Paul is highlighting here. And this is really what's at stake here in this church that is clinging to this kind of legalism. Some people, you know, are susceptible to uh, a moral legalism and thinking that their behavior matters supremely because their salvation is based on their good works. That's, that's one error. Some people fall into that camp of moral legalism. But then there are others who fall into the camp of, of moral license and they think that their uh, behavior doesn't matter at all because they're saved by grace alone. Both of these are dangerous and demonic errors. Scripture says, as we read uh, before in Ephesians 2, we are, we are saved by grace through faith, not saved by good works, but saved to good works 
by the power of the Holy Spirit. As, as Paul laid out there explicitly in this letter he wrote to the members directly in this Ephesian church. In Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 for, and, and 10. For by grace you have been saved through faith. It's not of your own doing. It's a gift of God. It's, it's not a result of your works. You could never earn this favor. Grace is by definition unmerited favor. He says, so that no one can boast. But he goes on. For we are God's workmanship. Created in Christ Jesus. What does he say? For good works. You see the tension there? Paul's saying, don't, don't get this wrong. You, you are not saved by your good works. You couldn't earn this gift. You have nothing to boast of. But you, you are God's workmanship. You are made for something better than this life that you've come from. You were created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. And we see this tension play out specifically here in chapter 4 between, between legalism on the one hand and, and godly discipline and obedience on the other. This is what Paul is getting at here in chapter 4 with Timothy. One writer said, uh, legalism imagines that I will do this thing and gain merit and gain my standing and favor before God. While godly training, godly discipline says, I will do this because I love God and I want to please him. So what are you living for? Are you trying to earn your way in this? Because earning your way is exhausting. But, but responding out of, out of love and as a response to God's mercy, responding to his initiation of his grace in your life, love Love is easy. To respond in love is much easier. On the one hand, Paul is condemning this legalism of the false teachers, their works-based righteousness. And yet, on the other hand, you see what Paul is doing. He is instructing Timothy in no uncertain terms that he must work hard at the task that God has given him. To discipline himself, to work out his Godliness. This is what I want to focus on this morning. This is Paul's charge to Timothy. Much of, much of this letter is about what Timothy should be teaching others in terms of how they ought to behave in God's church. But here in chapter 4, Paul really is speaking directly to Timothy. And the, the, the picture here, I don't want you to miss it. This, the picture here really is of a, of a father speaking with a son. This is a lot of affection. This is a lot of love. This, Paul, Paul and Timothy have been together now, have been working together now for about uh, 15 years approximately at this point. Timothy is mentioned in, in 10 of Paul's letters. He's mentioned in the book of Hebrews. Timothy's mentioned in the book of Acts, always as a friend and companion to the Apostle Paul. And, and more, even really more than a friend and companion, he's mentioned as, as Paul's spiritual son as his beloved child. Over and over again, he's referred to as a spiritual child, as a beloved and faithful child in 1 Corinthians. My true child in the faith in 1 Timothy 1. My child in 1 Timothy 1.18. My beloved child in 2 Timothy 1. As his son in Philippians 2.22. Paul refers to Timothy as his son more times than he refers to anyone else as his son combined, all the other people. They have this special, intimate connection, this father-son relationship. And here, Paul, from this very relational, connected place, he gets really personal with Timothy. 
And beginning in, in verse 7, you can see there Paul gives Timothy a series of, of commands, the, the series of charges, a, a string of imperative verbs. Essentially, Paul is laying out for Timothy what it's going to look like to stay the course in gospel ministry and gospel maturity. So, so this, is, this, is, this is for us, church. This is, this is Paul's charge to Timothy here, to, to this young man who's pastoring this, this hard church in a hard place, but it's also a charge to us. This, this verse, of course, serves as a, a template for what growth in godliness looks like, yes, especially for Christian leaders, but really for all of us who want to uh, serve and grow and mature in our faith. And I hope that that's where many of us are at. We, we, have, we have this sense in us, we have this ache in us that we want to grow in godliness, which he is calling us to. And here's what he says to Timothy. This is where it begins this string of, of imperatives here in verse 7. He first says, have nothing to do with these irreverent and silly myths. Instead, train yourself for godliness. This, this verse translated in, in the message version of the Bible, uh, Eugene Peterson, the writer, puts it this way. Stay clear of the silly stories that get dressed up as religion. Instead, exercise daily in God. No spiritual flabbiness, please. Anybody feeling spiritually flabby? Flabby in general? You don't have to raise your hand. This is, what the, this is what the false teachers were doing. This is what Paul was condemning of the false teachers and encouraging and charging of Timothy. They, 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 were, they were getting caught up in this endless speculation, but they were, they were neglecting the, the truth of the teachings of Scripture and the true teaching of the apostles. The word that Paul uses here in verse 7, train yourself in godliness, is this Greek word from which we get our word uh, gymnasium. Or gymnastics, this, this spiritual gym. This is something that you are working out. It means literally training and exercise. And he's using it in terms of Timothy's godliness. Again, you see the tension between legalism, this works-based righteousness, and yet this charge to devote yourself to these good works that God is calling you to. Jay Adams, uh, one of the founders of the biblical counseling movement, he wrote, uh, the, the word discipline has disappeared from our minds. It has disappeared from our mouths, from our pulpits, and even from our culture. We hardly know what di discipline means anymore in modern American society. And yet there is no other way to attain godliness. Discipline is, as Paul says, the path to godliness. What do, you, what do you need to do to get fit? Right? I mean, in some ways, diet and exercise. It's pretty simple, right? Maybe you prefer the terms nutrition and fitness. It's, it's, about, what, it's about what goes into your body, right? And it's about what you do with your body. That's, that's how you train. That's how you get fit. And this is what Paul is saying here about spiritual health and wellness. Paul is saying... Of avoid the spiritual junk food, as it were, the controversies, the, the sound bites, the doctrinal rabbit holes that lead nowhere, this endless speculation. Instead, feast on the word. What are you, what are you, what are you nourished with? 
He says, being trained in the words of faith. This is your spiritual gem and of good doctrine. So avoid spiritual junk food and train yourself for godliness. The, the way that you get strong, so I've heard, so I've seen as exemplified in my life, is you lift heavy things, right? You get strong by lifting heavy things. I heard, I heard one preacher say, commenting on this passage before, he says, we need to be breaking a spiritual sweat. All right. When was the last time you broke a spiritual sweat? When was the last time you were engaging heavy things? How's your, how's your spiritual training going? Are you seeing gains? Are you, are you lifting heavy things? Is it, is it only, is your spiritual life limited to the, to the five-minute devotional or the short video clips online? Now, don't, don't mishear me. There's nothing wrong with those things necessarily, but if that's all there is, to, to what extent would you say you're hitting the spiritual gym, growing in godliness? Maybe you haven't opened your Bible in months. Maybe, maybe for some of you, years. Maybe for some of you, uh, ever. Maybe you've never sat under the training of the Holy Spirit. Maybe it's been a long time since you've done the, the hard work of sitting silently in prayer. Paul says, train yourself for godliness. Train yourself for godliness. And, and I, I think really, when I read a passage like this, I hope, I hope this is coming across for you guys. Um, this should be encouraging because it means that spiritual maturity, that spiritual growth um, isn't automatic. So if you're not, if you're not experiencing it, there's no, there's, no, there's no need for shame here, Right? This isn't, this isn't that, you're, that there's something uniquely wrong with you. Paul is just saying, this is something that you work at. This is something that you grow in. This is something that takes effort. This growth in spiritual maturity and godliness. It's just like almost every other area of life, right? Relationships, your work, your hobbies, any sort of skill, Right? You work at it. And typically, what happens, just like in every other area of life, joy follows discipline. And the, the, more, the more disciplined and committed to something you are, you will, literally find, you will usually find joy will follow that kind of discipline. Amen. You get more joy out of the things that you have invested in and that you're growing in. Some of you guys are, are familiar with uh, Jocko Willink, who was a Navy SEAL for almost 20 years. He, he rose through the ranks to become the commander of, of, of Task Unit Bruiser, which was the most decorated special operations unit of the Iraq War. Um, he, he retired and, and, and continued to start a consulting company and write, number one, New York Times bestseller books like Extreme Ownership and uh, The Way of the Warrior Kid. He was interviewed in Forbes magazine uh, a few years ago, and, and, and he wrote this about discipline. He said this about discipline. He, says, he said um, he was exposing this, this idea that we have in our mind that, that, that freedom or joy and discipline are at odds. And he's saying, no, 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 they're actually connected. He says, while discipline and freedom or joy seem like they sit on opposite sides of the spectrum, they're actually very connected. Freedom is what everybody wants, right? We all want freedom and joy. 
But to be able to act and live with freedom and joy, the only way to get to a place of freedom is through discipline. For example, if you want financial freedom, he says, you have to be financially disciplined. If you want free time, you have to follow a more disciplined time management schedule. You have to be on top of your schedule. You also have to have discipline to say no to things that eat up your day with no payback. He says discipline equals freedom and joy. And it applies to every aspect of your life. If you want more freedom, if you want more joy, so I'll put it in these terms, if you want more spiritual joy, more freedom and growth in your spiritual life, Get more discipline. Invest in your spiritual life. Or to put it in the words of Elton Trueblood, who was an American theologian and chaplain at Harvard University, he says, we have not advanced very far in our spiritual lives because we have not encountered this basic paradox of freedom, that we are most free when we are most bound. Discipline is the price of freedom and joy. You know, for, for most of us, our, our, we're, we're living with very competing desires, you know. It's, we're, always, we're always letting one desire go in lieu of the other because we, we want, um, you know, we, we, we want to look good in a bathing suit, but we want to eat cheap and convenient food as much as we want. We want to have mastery over a skill or a hobby, but we also want to waste untold hours on unimportant activities. We may want sexual exploration or innovation, and yet we want true intimacy and companionship. Those desires are at odds. Our, our lives are one of competing desires. We may want to grow into spiritual maturity, but often we want to do anything but sit for a long time with our Bibles open on our lap, praying to God who was there. Real freedom, real joy, real life and health can only be enjoyed once, our, our, once one desire is constrained for another. And we do this through our discipline. And we can start small. If you're not reading your Bible at all, start with just a few verses. If you're used to reading a few verses, maybe read a whole chapter. Maybe sit for a while just in silence. So many of us, when we pray, we get immediately distracted and we feel guilty and we feel ashamed and we feel frustrated. Maybe, maybe just give yourself the, your, the permission to just sit in silence for a while and let your mind wander, but keep drawing it as best you can back to the person of Christ or back to just one verse of Scripture or maybe even one word or phrase of Scripture. Paul is calling this young leader to grow in his godliness, to train himself for godliness. It takes work. It takes time. And Paul says there's a, there's a reward there. There's such a rich reward there. He says, well, while bodily training has some value, and it does, and he uses the, the, the analogies of, of, of sports regularly and, and, and various bodily training analogies throughout his writing. He says, well, that does have some value. Godliness is a value in every way, and not just, not just now, but for your life to come. 
I think that's also an important kind of thing to catch there is that maybe for some of us, we just think about our spiritual life being sort of um, the life later. And, and, and Paul is saying that the, the benefits that you will experience even now in this moment, as you train yourself in godliness, you'll experience those fruits now and those will pay dividends even in the life to come. Paul's called not only to to train himself in godliness, but also to command and teach these things as a young pastor to these others in his congregation, including to all these legalists in in his congregation who are teaching these false doctrines. And so Paul gets even more personal in chapter 4. You could call it a challenge or maybe, maybe an encouragement, but he tells Timothy in verse 12, let no one despise you for your youth, but set the believers an example in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, in purity. Not only is Timothy to, to exercise for godliness, he's to exemplify godliness even as a young man so that no one would despise him and his leadership. And he highlights these few things, speech, conduct, love, faith, and purity. Is your speech filled with love and with grace? Is your speech filled with tenderness? Church, how's your, how's your speech? Getting better. That's a good answer. Is it thoughtful? Is it sincere? Is it, is it marked with humility? Is it wholesome? Is it, here's what Paul's saying, is it exemplary? Is your conduct honorable? Is it sacrificial? Is it, is it self-serving or self-giving? Is it disciplined or is it lazy? Is your conduct unifying or divisive? And he says, is, is, your, is, your, is your love marked by what Paul says in 1 Corinthians? Is it marked by patience and kindness, tenderness? Is your love marked by fidelity and commitment and selflessness? Or what about your faith? Is your, is your faith rooted in the gospel or is it shallow? Is it anchored in Christ and his word and his faithfulness? Or are you still trying ultimately to trust in yourself or in your superior morality or in your performance? Is your life marked by purity in your behavior, in your thoughts and how you spend your time? Is it exemplary? That's what he's calling Timothy too. Have you taken every thought captive? In some way, you can think of, of these as the two main things Timothy is called to, to exercise for godliness and to exemplify that godliness in conduct, in love, in faith, in purity. In other words, there's no real shortcut to this, right? There's no, there's no shortcut to creating a gospel culture in the church or creating a gospel culture in your home or, or even no, no shortcut to gospel maturity in our own hearts. This is something we exercise at and we do our best to grow in and exemplify. We exercise in it and we grow to exemplify. In the, in the words of Eugene Peterson, uh, he said, this is, this is just long obedience in the same direction. Long obedience in the same direction. That's, that's the Christian life. Paul didn't give Timothy a silver bullet solution to deal with these false doctrines. 
He didn't, he didn't give him a silver bullet solution to confront legalism or to address this issue or that issue. He didn't give him a new paradigm for church growth or church structure. Or, or, or he, he just said, he said, exercise yourself in godliness and show it to the world because people are watching. Train yourself. Keep at it every day. In the, when it says being trained there in verse 6, this is a, a present participle, which means this is an ongoing, continuous process. Get in the gym every day. Train yourself for godliness. Toil and strive. Bolster your leadership and your credibility with godly character over time. Paul goes on. He says, until I come to you, devote yourself. Listen to these words. Devote yourself to the public reading of scripture, exhortation, and teaching. Do not neglect the gift which you have given, which was given you by prophecy when the elders laid their hands on you. Practice these things. Immerse yourself in these things. Literally, be in them. Be absorbed into these things. Sink down deep into these things so that all may see your progress. This is the way forward. Effectively, if you want to lead others, you have to lead yourself. This is true of Timothy in Ephesus. This is true of every parent in the room. This is true of every leader. This is how Timothy was called to oversee the church by overseeing himself. Famous Puritan pastor Richard Baxter, he wrote, Take heed of yourself, lest your example contradict your doctrine, lest you unsay with your life. That which you say with your tongue. Because that's what's at risk here. That we would undo. Our kids are watching, right? We know that. Our grandkids, our spouses, our coworkers, our neighbors. Don't undo with your life what you've tried to do with your speech. So Paul says, keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching persist in this for by so doing you will save both yourself and your hearers what's Paul saying there of course Paul's not saying that uh, by persisting in these things by training himself in godliness and by teaching these things that he will in in any way spiritually redeem himself or his hearers we see throughout the New Testament that the, the terms saved and salvation, they're used in a, in a few different ways. We see them used in the, in the past tense, we see them used in the present tense, and we see them used in the future tense. So there's this idea that Paul will speak of salvation, for example, as a past event. That at one point you were saved and you passed from death unto life or you were justified. But then he'll use salvation in another sense that you are, like he does in in Philippians 2, that you are working out your salvation with fear and trembling. You are being saved, a process of your sanctification. And then Paul will look ahead, for example, like in Romans where he talks about, and then one day we will be saved, this, this glorification that we will have when we experience oneness with Christ and our salvation is complete. To put it another way, one writer said this, through justification we have been freed from the penalty of sin, Through sanctification, we are being freed from the power of sin. And in the end, we will be freed altogether from the presence of sin for eternity in the presence of Christ. And so, we press on. Paul is saying that this this life that you're living, this obedience that you're growing in, this, this exercise, this spiritual exercise that you're engaged in, that you're calling your people to, 
It will, it will ripple through their lives now. They will, they will be getting tastes of the eternal life even here and now. It will produce value for you here and for the life to come. And so we press on. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, they get highlights some of the tension that we see here in uh, 1 Timothy 4. He says, this is in 1 Corinthians 15, 10. Paul says, but by the grace of God, listen to these words, but by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them. Though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. You see what Paul's doing there? You see what he's saying there? He's saying, by the grace of God, God did this thing in me. It's, it's because of him that I am what I am. It's his grace toward me. It was not in vain. Every bit of this is grace. And so I worked all the harder. I worked harder than everybody else. And even in that work, Paul's saying, even that was God's grace in my life. Compelling me on. Every bit is mercy. Every breath is gift. We are not saved by good works, but we are saved for good works. Paul worked hard at godliness as a response to the overwhelming grace that God had shown him. He says explicitly, I worked so hard, but it's not really me. It was that grace in me. Even then, he looks back and trusts that God was doing what he could not. Church, our, our, our righteousness is as filthy rags to his glory. Our, our discipline will always be found wanting. Our faithfulness will always come up short. Our, our best effort will never justify us. And yet Paul, as Paul says in, in Philippians 3.14, he says, and yet we, we press on towards the goal and the prize, this upward call of God in Christ Jesus. You're saying every bit of this is grace and because it's all grace, I'm pressing on. And even in my pressing on, I'm knowing grace upon grace. Church, legalism is lethal to your soul. It will just destroy your soul. But, but loving obedience and training in godliness is necessary to enjoy the transforming fruit that the Spirit is growing in your life. This is the Spirit doing the work. Not to earn God's favor, but in response to God's overwhelming, unmerited grace, His unmerited mercy. So I, I, I call us together, church. Look to Christ this morning. Look to Christ. The scripture says, who works in us both to will and to work for his good pleasure. We, we trust, we look to Christ and we trust in him to give us the strength to carry what only he can bear. We look to him.